We want to turn in our Bibles to 1 John this, again this morning, and uh, we want to go to chapter 3, and we'll be picking up in verse 11. I mentioned the flag being at half-mast, and probably you went home a week ago and uh, turned on your television set and began to get images out of Texas and realized what had happened out there in that little church. Uh, this is the kind of thing that you might expect to see happen in First Baptist Atlanta or First Baptist Dav Dallas or someplace like that. But uh, here in this remote little country church out in the middle of nowhere, way outside of outside, uh, an event like that occurred. and Just stunning. And so we've heard about that in the news now down through the last week. And uh, by the way, our deacons are reflecting on what do you do for security here in our church? What would, what would you do if something like that happened? So your church does have people that are considering what you would do and uh, trying to formulate a plan. But in all the news about the horror of that event, what got a little bit of coverage but not enough was the response of the people of that church. The exceptional response of faith, Christian faith, of the people of that little bitty Baptist congregation. And that church is going to go on. It probably will flourish in the future because of their heart response and I think the Texas Baptists are going to rebuild a sanctuary there and a memorial garden and things are going to go forward, some remarkable things. But what was exceptional was the faith that those people turned to in that darkest of hours and the love of Christ that they were able to project. When Christians are what they're supposed to be, it is exceptional by the world standards. It's, it's not really exceptional if you're biblical. It's normal Christianity. But in the contrast to the world of darkness and evil around us, biblical Christianity is exceptional and glorious, and it gives a powerful witness and testimony. And those dear people in Texas, the, the survivors that uh, were part of that little church family, were able to rally around their faith in those moments. When John writes this little letter we're looking at this morning, it is not a good time. It's late in the first century, and the known world, at least known to John's crowd, the people from the Middle East to Spain, around the Mediterranean, those folks were part of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire uh, had moved on from being ruled by a Senate and that kind of thing to some horrendous emperors. We've talked about our presidents and we, the ones we like and the ones we don't like and the ones that are good. We've never had in America anything remotely close to what those Roman emperors were like. Ruthless, evil individuals. Places and times when it was tough to be a Christian. And in that setting, the church, the true church, flourished and grew and multiplied. And John, old man John... Here we see him again talking to the children of the church, which means everybody younger than John. He writes back to encourage them again to be exceptional, not operating according to their feelings, but operating according to how they've been directed by the Lord Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is our message, John says, and it's nothing new. Uh, probably in an early morning crowd, uh, early morning crowd tends to be folks that have been around 
First Baptists in, in particular, but around Christianity a while, and they get up early and they come, and, and they know the story of Jesus, and they know the message of Jesus, and they've sung these incredible songs about the faithfulness of God and his love being poured out, and we have all that theology in our heads and we know that, and John says, I know you know that, and that this is our message from the beginning. Beginning there, I think, being the early days of Jesus' ministry. You could take it all the way back to Genesis if you wanted to, but I think he has in mind Christ coming on the scene, uh, taking on flesh, being among us, and his message by teaching but also by example is that we should be a people of love, an exceptional people of love. So this is our message. You've heard it all along. If you've been around uh, the Baptist faith in this church or another congregation for very long, you've heard all those verses over and over. For God so loved the world. And on you go with all your favorite love passages. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 13 and the emphasis there, right in the middle of all of his discussion about life issues and spiritual gifts, he stops and he says, but you know, if we don't have love, we're just noisy gongs, clanging cymbals. We've lost our testimony. But it's the Apostle John, I think, above all, who speaks of love, biblical New Testament love that's to be a part of our Christian experience says, this is it. This is the message. This is our purpose. We're supposed to love and love one another. Sometimes it's easier to love God and Christ than to love other people. But John won't let us get by with that. The two are linked. Now John reaches way back to the writings of Moses and beyond that back to the events of the book of Genesis for his first example he says, not as Cain, don't be like Cain, who was of, evil, of the evil one. We talked about last week uh, another phrase of John talking about being of the devil. It says, Cain was of the evil one, and he slew his brother. And for what reason? Why did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, that is, Cain's deeds were evil, and his brothers, that's Abel, or Africans would say Abel, Abel's Deeds, well, they were righteous. Sometimes you come to that Genesis 4 story of those two brothers. They're both making offerings. And uh, Abel comes with his sacrifice offering, a bloody offering. And Cain brings from his harvest. He's a farm guy. And he brings from what he has and he makes an offering. And some people say it's all about blood and and. Cain's offering didn't have blood involved in it, so it didn't represent the cross, and so it was not acceptable to God. I really don't think that's the point of Genesis. If that's your theology and, and you're comfortable with that, then that's fine. I don't have a huge problem. You're in company with a lot of good folks down through the ages. I think the problem is not with what Cain brought, but the attitude in his heart as he, as he brings it. And John's picking up on that again, just like Genesis did. And he says, uh, the problem with Cain is his deeds were evil. Not that his offering was inappropriate, but something's messed up in Cain's heart. And Abel, well, he's got it. 
He understands the heart of God and he has that flowing through his heart and he wants to be like that and honor God in all things. And, and so his life, his deeds are described by the Apostle John much later as righteous deeds. He acts like a man of God. He acts like he's a man of faith. And so John writes and he says, don't be like Cain. Don't come with your offerings, but with a rotten attitude. Don't come before God and ask God to bless your life when something's wrong on the inside, especially as it relates to other people. And for all those unrighteous deeds in Cain's life, they're all dwarfed by the unrighteous deed of taking the life of his brother. Can you imagine in those earliest days of humanity and that small family and these two brothers and that occurring? I cannot, as a father of sons, I can't imagine what that was like that day. Adam and Eve, I, I can imagine they were just ready for life to be over and just blown away by what had occurred in their family that that was even possible but even yet sovereign God had a plan and he would work through the third son to bring redemption even to those whose deeds were evil but John says don't don't be like Cain he's not our model verse 13 do not be surprised brethren if the world hates you and I think he's again looking back at the Genesis story Cain hated Abel he was jealous. There was a, a strange jealousy. It's not that Abel had taken anything that was Cain's. That's not part of the story. Uh, Cain had every opportunity to, to prosper in the, the business as it was in that day. They both were loved by their parents, I'm sure. But there's a jealousy on the part of the unrighteous toward the righteous. And I see it today. You live for Jesus Somebody's going to resent you. You put a sports uh, figure in the public arena who's willing to speak out for Christ. They're going to be people that don't, they don't even understand why, but they don't like that guy because he's outspoken in his faith. There are oppressed Christians in Africa and Asia today whose lives are on the line for the cause of Christ. There's a whole new country you, the, the question how many countries are there in the world it's like you mean yesterday or tomorrow it says you know things are changing and uh, there was a time at the University of Georgia when I learned every country in the world and could put them on a map I don't think I could do that today I could get a lot of them but a lot of them have come into existence since those days way back then uh, the country of southern Sudan uh, nobody had imagined that one yet. Sudan's been around forever. The, the region of the Sudan is south of Egypt and the, the Nile River flows through it and it just goes out into a swamp and that big, huge country's been there and what an incredibly troubled area it is. And out of that, there's been a break and the Christians in the south have southern Sudan or south Sudan now and there's regular Sudan and uh, the turmoil and I can't imagine what those people live through but a lot of the misery and heartache they have is because they are just associated with Christ incredible persecution the world doesn't hear too much about what goes on in Africa we get real concerned about things and when it's in Europe or America but all oh, the suffering for the name of Jesus and John lived through a lot of that and he saw a lot of that. And as he's writing these words, he's in that kind of context. And he says, don't be surprised, brethren, or brothers and sisters. The NIV likes to render things. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. 
in Christ as the church, if you're part of the true church of Christ, Baptist, Presbyterian, or whatever flavor, if you're part of the true church of Christ, don't be shocked if the unbelieving world doesn't like you and maybe even persecutes you. It's part of the flow of things. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Now, when John writes that, he's still breathing oxygen and still has a pulse. He's still alive. That's not what he meant, not a literal death. But he says, we have died to the old and we've come alive in Christ because we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. If the, the Christian love that John writes about here, that Jesus modeled for us and called us to, if that's not a part of who we are, we're still living in the dark side. We're still living in death. There are a lot of walking dead folks around us who are spiritually dead and need to come alive in Christ. And he says, we know. Nobody knew like John. He writes about the assurance of salvation later in this letter. He said, we know we've passed out of that. And one of the clear indications that we've left that behind and we're new in Christ is our ability to love. To love our families, of course, but almost everybody does that. But to love the church and to love beyond the church, the world that desperately needs Christ. He says, that's our, that's our proof to those that watch, but that's our internal proof that we're on track, that we have the capacity to love when it's not normal to do so, normal in the worldly kind of way. When it's supernatural, when it's spiritual to do so, that's when we know we're alive in Christ and John, uh, John can't get enough of it for himself and he can't proclaim it strong enough for us. He is the one who above all else teaches us the love of Jesus and writes of it in his writings in the New Testament. Everyone, he says in verse 15, who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, he said, wait a minute, John. You're just getting carried away now. Well, John's carried away because a little over 60 years before he writes this, or about 60 years before he writes this letter, John was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, and Jesus went up on a little rise there, I think at Tabga, uh, where they fed the 5,000 in another setting, and Jesus went up on the little rise there. Uh, there's a, a church way up on the hill that's a modern church, but there's the, the ruins where the early church built a little small little chapel to mark the site. Jesus went up on that rise and gave the Sermon on the Mount. It was not on the mountain, but just on the rise, on the mount. And he went through all kinds of things related to Christian ethics. And he raised the bar. And he said, you know, you, you think you're fine because you're not committing adultery. But what do you think about in your thought life? And Jesus got very real with things. And he said, you say you will never murder anybody, but you harbor hate in your life. And he says, I, I put those on the same shelf. Jesus taught with John listening that it's not appropriate to hate and it's a form of murder. Jesus said that, not me. I don't, don't, don't get disturbed with me. I, I'm, I'm not making this up, nor is John. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, John is here saying, six decades later, this is our story from the beginning. Remember uh, the Sermon on the Mount? Remember the beginning. If you hate your brother, it's a form of murder. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
If you've got a problem between you and somebody else that makes you despise or hate that person, you're not, you might be a Christian, but you're not abiding in Christ. You're not in step. You're not marching to the beat of Christ if that's true of you. God forbid. What we want is not what comes naturally to us. We want the love of Christ to consume us so that we abide in it, so that we respond to people, even the unlikable, unlovable people of the world in a way that surprises them and surprises those that are watching. And John says, you want to abide in that kind of love and then you won't hate and you won't participate in that which even Jesus would call a form of murder. You'll be freed from that and free to be what you're supposed to be in Jesus Christ. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Uh, I know I'm, I'm weird. I'm, I'm different. I've been to Israel enough, and I've spent the last 40 years in the Bible. And when we sing a song, uh, like we sang this morning, uh, my mind jumps to places in Israel, and I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre a few minutes ago, and you take away all the, the buildings, and you get back down. And if you know what you're looking at, under the altar at the eastern end of that church building is a big rock. It's several times higher than this platform and about the size of this platform, and it's Calvary. It looks like a skull, and it's a place of death. And I think Jesus was crucified right there. I think I could prove it to you. And I think when he was, all the imagery in that church faces to the west. Uh, Jesus on a cross facing west. I think he was facing east. And if he, was, if he was, he was looking right into Jerusalem. He was right in line, right in the backside of the Holy of Holies of the Old Temple. As it was in the New Testament times. And there, uh, I can imagine that cross with no church building around it just out the barren cross the place of death and him looking out and pouring out his heart for the people he came to die for as our savior and our redeemer these songs we sing sometimes we can be thinking about the bulldogs of the yellow jackets while we sing those words and somehow the the truth of that theology must permeate our spirit. And if we will allow it to, it will change how we feel about all kinds of things and all kinds of people and how we react. It says, we know this, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. He says, that's the good news. Uh, we won't say the bad news, but the, the other news is that we're called to do the same. Now, you may not have to in your life, you may not have to die for somebody else. But you may need to lay down your life tomorrow morning, socially or culturally, to build a bridge for the cause of Christ, to win somebody to Jesus, uh, to respond to somebody who's brokenhearted or needing encouragement. Uh, you may need to set aside your own agenda and your own priorities and live for Christ and lay down your life for the people that Jesus died for on that cross a long, long time ago. Jesus says, um, John says, that's how we know uh, that love is operating in us. This is how we know we're Christians. This is normal Christian behavior. But whoever has the world's goods, uh, it's a strength, the, the word he says is whoever has a ton bayon, it's a, a variant spelling of bios, which 
This is where we get biology from. It has to do with life. Uh, so John says, whoever has life, uh, the things of life in the world, which could be resources. It could be, of course, money and the potential to spend money, but it could be time. Whoever has the things of life, that's most folks at First Baptist Church, isn't it? We are so privileged. Whoever has the world's goods, this translation says, or NIV says, whoever has material possessions and sees his brother, which could be a lot of people out there, people that maybe you'll never see face to face, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart. It's sort of weird, but really what the New Testament says, it closes his bowels. Uh, in New Testament times, you didn't, you didn't use heart like we sometimes you do in New Testament, but um, we talk in our modern English about having a gut feeling. What, what, when we say that, we mean on the inside, we really feel something. And that's sort of the imagery John uses here. Uh, whoever sees that need out there, whoever sees South Sudan and, and closes his heart, doesn't get it, it doesn't impact that person. He's got goods, they've got needs, and his heart is closed. John just asked the question, how does the love of God abide in him? What's Christian about that? What's Christian about having a lot of stuff? And we, in our prosperity gospel age, you see it on television, we talk about how God has blessed us with all this stuff, and that's, like, that's some uh, confirmation that we're spiritual because we're wealthy. And John says, no, that's not the measure at all. If you see the, the world uh, in its uh, dilemmas and all the, the negative impact of the dark side of life, you see all of that and you close your heart to it and you don't care. The missions offerings a small thing. Our mission trips unthinkable to you. How does the love of God abide in that kind of person, John asked. And now John, if you know John, I love John. He's, he may be, other than Jesus, my favorite biblical character. He's, he's on the short list anyhow. But you know that this guy uh, has been transformed radically by the love of God. And he has a heart for people at least as much as any believer in the Bible. And so he knows what he's talking about. And he's, uh, if you know the heart of John, he's not sarcastic. He's not a smart aleck. He's not self-righteous. He's anything but all of those things. But he says, come on, folks. How does that even have a claim to be Christian? How can we say that we're abiding in Christ and have that kind of heart where we're not touched in regard to other people, even unlovable people or different kind of people? Little children. John comes back to that again. Remember, everybody's little to, to John. Everybody's young to John. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed, in truth, it's easy to talk about Christian love. It's easy to go, uh, to, for me to stand here and talk about it. It's easy for you to go over to your Sunday school class in a few minutes and have a lesson about that, and everybody be in complete agreement that we, uh, we love the love of God, and we're grateful that he's loving, and that we ought to be loving, and we're going to go out, and we're going to love people. It's easy to agree on that, and, and speak of those things and even teach our children the importance of that and uh, use speech, the, use the tongue 
to talk of the love of God. But he says, but let it be also in our actions and truth. John's not saying don't talk about the love of God. He's just saying don't let that be all there is to it. Don't let it be a hypocritical veneer that you put over your life. Let it be true of you that you put love into action. And the weaponry of the church in this day is truth and love in action. John's summarizing this paragraph with those words. Where your faith is not something that you think, uh, that you signed up to, for, that you want to be a part of, but it's something that you live and you set before the watching world faithfully, consistently, even if it's costly, even, he says, if you have to lay down your life for it. And John uh, didn't have to do that, but he was on the edge of that all his life. John stood at the base of that cross. When everybody else ran, John stood there with Mary and spoke to Jesus at close range. And for the next 60 years, he lived on the edge of, of disaster and persecution. And only by the grace of God, he survived to an old age that he might write these contributions to the New Testament for us. Don't let it be mere words idle speech but let it be in deed and in truth you live it you live it in your own life had a discussion recently with an african-american friend of mine he's a pastor uh, some of you would know and we were having a discussion about race issues in america today and we were both saddened by what we were talking about and he had come from another discussion uh, you know, we're the most segregated place still in 2017 and in a town like ours is Sunday morning. And uh, we sort out with a few exceptions. Uh, and he was talking about people uh, that he had been around who had feelings about people that were different from them. And it all had to do with not uh, what you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but what you think about Democrats and Republicans. And my friend was grieved over the fact that politics was dividing the church along racial lines. What a tragedy. What a sad thing. I thought back of all the, the, the distance we've come in my lifetime from what was going on when I was a little kid to what's going on or can go on in, in Christ-centered places today, the victories that have been won at great price. What a tragic thing it would be for the Lord's people and different houses of worship to, to begin to not get along over things that happen outside the church. And John is pleading with black churches and white churches and African churches and Asian churches and all kind of churches, he's pleading with the, the Lord's people, oh, dear people, please be exceptional. Go out of your way to build not a wall but a bridge. I'm not talking about any Trump stuff. Please don't confuse this. But build bridges in your own community to people. When you're around people at Walmart or the schoolhouse, some of you, or your industry, some of you, are just places it's our calling according to john here to go out of our way to be exceptional to be different from normal human reaction and by christ being in us and us abiding in christ we're able to love 
And if we're able to do that, we're able to change the world. And if we're not able to do that, we'll never change the world. We can build a thousand buildings and spend a bazillion dollars and we won't change the world. John says you change it. Our weapon and the spiritual clash of the ages is the church's resounding ability for 2,000 years to love when it's not expected. And we shock people by that when we're able to do it. And so we reach and we reach and we reach. That's what it means to be a Christian in 2017 in America. Not doing what's comfortable, but doing what Christ would do. Not doing what uh, comes to us accidentally, but what we do deliberately. We say to people that are different and people that need Jesus and, and people who know Jesus that need encouragement. We say, you know, we are one in Christ and we love you and we will build the kingdom together deliberately, intentionally for a higher good. Because someday all the stuff of, of our culture is going to be gone and the church will shine through into eternity. So it's okay to be excited about this thing and that thing in life that's but as long as we keep the main thing, the main thing, and we love with our deeds and with the truth and with the, not just our speech, we are genuinely committed to loving people because Christ loved us. And John really, really, really wants you to know that. Old man John, running out of time, running out of ink, wants you to know that. That's your calling. That's who you are as biblical Christians. Join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning, we do look back to Jerusalem and to Calvary and to that cross. And your word tells us repeatedly that love was poured out that day when Jesus died in our place. It was an expression of love and it was a model of love. And here your apostle calls us to lay down our lives and our priorities and throw away our prejudices and our, our petty concerns that we might rise up and get focused on things that really count. Fill our hearts with your love uh, that it might not just be something we experience but something that overflows from us. Lord, help us in these coming days to love as Jesus loved and share that in truth and in deed, in action. Help us to apply our faith to the everyday details of life not because we'll get good enough at it, but because your spirit is at work in our lives and in our circumstances. We look to you in faith and we do so with thanksgiving in Jesus' name.